Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning, and um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's just great to worship with you all. Amen? It was just a great time of worship. I might lose my voice this morning preaching because I was singing. That's a benefit for you and uh, also for me, so if that happens, I guess. So that's all that needs to be said on that. So we are continuing our series this morning through this, uh, this beautiful book of Psalms. And as I've shared before, and I'll share it again, this is just, I don't know, for me, just an incredibly beautiful book, an incredibly raw book at times in some of the Psalms that we have been looking at. And um, as we have been journeying through this, I've been sharing, hopefully, some different quotes from different theologians about the book of Psalms. This morning, I want to share one from N.T. Wright. And he, he writes the following about the book of Psalms. He says this, the Psalms are inexhaustible and deserve to be read, said, sung, chanted, whispered, learned by heart, and even shouted from the rooftops. They express all the emotions we ever likely to feel, including some we hope we may not. And they lay them, raw and open, in the presence of God. So one of the things that, if you've noticed, that we have been doing as we've we've been journeying through this book of Psalms, something that we've been adding into our time of worship uh, starting in January, when we started in this book, is been, we have been um, kind of working in either responsive reading of psalms or actually singing songs that are based on the psalm in which we are going to be looking at. And the whole point of that is exactly what I think N.T. Wright expresses so well in what he just wrote, is that the psalms are meant to be sung. The psalms are meant to be repeated. The psalms are meant to be shouted out, even from the rooftops. The Psalms are a great source of worship. Remember, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If we want to have some idea of what it means to love God, we we need to look to Psalms. Psalms, in many ways, is all about how we, as his followers, can love him. And what I love about that, and I've shared this before and I'll share it again, is that I hope you can understand and realize that we can be real before God. We do not have to hide anything. He knows us better than we know ourselves. There is nothing, let me just say this, there is nothing that we need to be ashamed of when we come into the presence of God. God already knows. God already knows. I'm going to murder this quote. I don't have it in my notes, but I just thought of it by C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to paraphrase it, which is my way of saying I'm going to murder what he was saying. Essentially, what he, was, what he wrote is, what is so unique about God is the fact that he chooses to still pursue us when we want to pursue everyone else and everything else except him. He still wants us. Do you know that? Do you know today that you are so deeply and, and just unbelievably loved that we serve and follow a God that pursues us, pursues us. Psalm 23, right? I wasn't here for that fifth Sunday. I promise, no, I better not even promise it. I, I will be at the next one at the end of July. But I remember uh, I was doing a, a funeral service and I, I, I was doing it in conjunction with a, a rabbi here at the church. Um, and, and I remember I read Psalm 23 um, out of the NIV translation. And 
afterwards, and, and, and in the NIV translation of Psalm 23, in fact, I'm just going to go there. I'm off script this morning, y'all in the back. Just temporary, just temporary. I will get back on, but this is just, yeah, who said that? I love that. Let's go, let's go. Um, Psalm 23 here is, now come on, oh, there it is. Um, I was like, I, Psalm 22 and Psalm 24, I don't see Psalm 23. Um, this is what I want to, this is what I want to focus in on, um, is where he, he's talking about how he guides me along right, right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And then, this is where I really want to go. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Follow is not the best Hebrew, or not the best English word for what the Hebrew word is trying to express. Do you know what that is really trying to express? No, you don't. Let me tell you. Okay? That word follow is actually pursue. It isn't as though his, his, it isn't as though, and this is kind of, kind of gives the, the sense, if you will, that his goodness and love are just following me, as though we're just walking in, oh, there it is, just behind me. There it is, just behind me. I'm out of the limelight, and I'm off-center camera now. So sorry for those of you who are watching online. I'm into this today. So, and no, 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 that's not the way the Hebrew word describes it. It is this, where I'm walking, and love and goodness are like, come. It's pursuing. It's chasing after. That's the God whom we serve, church. That's the God who died on the cross for every single one of us. You might be in a situation today, you might be here today, and you might be thinking, and it may have just been an awful week, and you might even ask yourself, does anyone love me? The answer is without a doubt, yes. Yes. If no one else loves you, God still does. If no one else will pursue you, God will and is pursuing you. That's beautiful. I could end there. That's the message, right? Amen, right? Let's sing. No way. No way. Um, we got to get to today's passage in Psalm 68 because it's in that spirit that we're going to look at this beautiful psalm of Psalm 68 that all of a sudden shares an aspect of God's power that I think so many of us, maybe, if we're honest about it, we somewhat struggle with God's power. What does God's power look like? We, we sang today in the songs, the lion and the lamb. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want the lion. The lion who, who takes charge, who's the king of the jungle, who fights, right? Our battles, who does all of this stuff, who's on my side, right? That's the God I want. The lion is the one I want, right? But if we're really, really honest about it, we better be careful what we ask for. I think in the end, if we had a choice, oh, I want the lamb. I want the lamb, right? Here's another off script thing, real quick. I'm off script today all. I know, right? Don't ever put a teleprompter in front of me, you know. Um, you know the old joke, right? What does a watch mean to a pastor or a preacher? Absolutely nothing. Um, Abraham Lincoln, in, the, in the, kind of the depths of the Civil War, came about 
that, that there were some people around him who believed that, you know, God is on our side. And he responded in a way that I think was just absolutely beautiful and accurate. He says, I don't know if God is on our side. I am just praying that I'm on his. Man. That is so... <sighs> Let me just say this. That... Um, Oftentimes, I think as Christians, and, and again, I'm, let me just be very specific, the Christians, evangelical Christians, oftentimes I think we are so certain that God is on our side that I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we wake up and find out we're not on his. And then the lion comes. And he's not fighting our battles. He's fighting someone else's battles. We just happen to be on the wrong side. So this dynamic of power is really fascinating, and we're going to look at that this morning. Now, as we come to this Psalm 68, here's the thing about Psalm 68. It's a part of a collection of psalms that it's a praise or it's a, it's a, it's a alleluia or a praise psalm, okay? And it's a collection of these psalms that are there together in Psalm 67 and 66 and 65 and, and, and kind of that grouping there. But nonetheless, what is so unique about Psalm 68 is that it is an incredibly difficult psalm for many biblical scholars, because there are some scholars who believe because of its difficulty that it is, it is just so disjointed. It is a disjointed psalm. In fact, there are 15 words in this psalm that appear nowhere else in the Bible. 15 words in this psalm that appear nowhere else in the Bible. And, and, and scholars and, and interpreters kind of struggle with this. And not only that, um, there are phrases and stuff that are maybe only, you know, once or twice mentioned in all of Scripture that are in this psalm. And so because of that, there are many scholars who believe that this psalm, out of all the psalms in the book of Psalms, is the most difficult psalm to interpret. Now, I read it and I say, well, I don't have a problem with that. But I, it, is, it is somewhat a disjointed psalm. And so there's theories and all this kind of stuff, but nonetheless... I think we can still gather from this, I hope this morning, of this essence of God's power. And this morning, we're only going to dive into like a first 10 verses and a few at the end of the psalm this morning um, to kind of get us a, a picture of what is going on here and what David is talking about here. Now, this psalm, as we're going to find out, was written in response to the ark being brought back into Jerusalem, Okay. That's the setting. The ark is being brought back into Jerusalem. Now, here's where we're going to pick it up at verse 1. And, and as we do so, there are two specific aspects of God's power, I think, that David highlights that I want us to see this morning. It's not the only aspects of God's power, but it is certainly at least two specific aspects of God's power that I want us to see here this morning. And so, um, let me just start with verse 1. I'm a little off script. I apologize, but I'll get you back. Um, so here's, let me just start off, and, and this is what David writes. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his, flow, may his foes rather flee before him. Now, I love that picture right there. David writes a declarative statement. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. The picture I have in my mind, and for those of you who had parents, which I think is all of us, the last I counted, is the picture of, maybe, maybe it was your dad. You knew when your dad meant business, 
when he was sitting in his chair and you said something or did something that was not good and all he had to do was get up and what did you do you ran <laughs> you ran you ran my brother tells me this story often i don't remember it all that well i remember it vaguely i don't know if my oldest daughter maggie would remember it at all she was maybe five or six at the time we were at my sister's house and it was time for us to go and i just said okay honey go ahead and get your jacket on we have to leave now and she said no dad i'm not going to do that and all i did i guess is i looked at her and she said just kidding <laughs> and put on her jacket I, I, that kind of imagery of dad's getting up out of his chair the hammer's going to drop Kind of, kind of imagery. That, that might be appropriate here in verse 1 of this psalm. And, 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 and what we see, and he goes on and he said this, May you blow them away like smoke as, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. Man, that is declarative statements all the way through that psalm about the awesome power of God. Remember the context. Remember the context in which David is writing this. The ark, the ark that had been captured by none other than the Philistines was being brought back into Jerusalem. Now, if you were a Jewish person in those days in which David is writing this, you know of the ark, you know of the importance of the ark, you know that the ark wasn't just simply a box with angels on the top and all that kind of stuff, and the top was the mercy seat. No, no, no. It was more than that. It didn't just house Aaron's rod and manna and the Ten Commandments. No, no. It was more important than that. The ark was the actual presence of God. Now, those of us who have watched Indiana Jones and the, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, we know the power of the ark. Right? We all saw that. I will never get that imagery of those soldiers, of that one bad guy, when that angel of death just melts his face off. Horrific, unbelievable power, right? But more than that, it's not even just that. The ark was the presence of God among the people of Israel. When the ark was there, God was with them. When the ark was there, and so the people of Israel, this is what they would do with the ark. If they were going into battle, they would take the ark with them. But not just take it with them, they would have the ark at the front of the procession as they were going to battle. The, the ark would be in front of them, and they would have confidence. God is going before us. Remember that kind of phraseology, right? He is going to fight our battles, right? Oh, 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 that's all having to do with the ark. All of this is going up. And in fact, this is, in many ways, this psalm, at least the first verse, couple of verses, it's almost reminiscent of what Moses said. And he said this, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. This was all about battle analogy. And so the Israelites would often go to battle with the Philistines. It was this back and forth conflict. Here's the thing. The Philistines were a militaristic society. Israel was an agrarian society, right? Guess when the Philistines would oftentimes raid the Israelites? During harvest season. They have the food. We need the food. Let's go get it. 
because they didn't want to grow their own food. Let's let the Israelites do it. So it was a common, it was not that unusual that all of a sudden the, that the Philistines would raid the Israelites. And we know the most famous Philistine was, of course, Goliath. David defeated Goliath, all that kind of great stuff. So David is very, very obviously um, very attuned to the Philistines. And so they go out this one time to fight the Philistines, except they didn't take the ark with them. And that was a problem. And they kind of lost a little bit there. Remember, Eli was the high priest, and, and Samuel was just coming up as the high priest at this time. And David, of course, knew Samuel and all that. They all knew each other kind of thing. And so they said, oh, kind of come back, kind of dejected. We forgot the ark. We need to take the ark with us. Really? It's kind of like, how'd you forget your car keys? It's kind of like one of those things. You're going to take a car. You've got to have the keys kind of thing. So they go back and they grab the ark. And there is this thunderous, rapturous praise that's going on, so much so that the ground is shaking. And the Philistines are going, what's going on over there? And one of the Philistines who was kind of scouting out and spying on them a little bit says, oh yeah, yeah, by the way, their God is coming to their camp. In other words, the ark is there. Oh, well, we're going to have to do battle with them anyways. So the Israelites now bring the ark and they go to battle with the Philistines once again. But guess what happened? They lost and not only that, the ark got captured. What? The ark got captured. God got captured. Remember, battles in those days wasn't just merely a sense of whose army was greater than whose army. It wasn't just a sense of whose king was greater than whose other king. It wasn't just a sense of whose society was more advanced or more powerful than the other society. No, 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 no. These battles oftentimes gave indications of whose God was greater. And you can imagine that all of a sudden, now the Philistines said, our God is greater. And the Israelites were dejected. So much so that Eli, the high priest, when he is reported that the ark has been captured, remember, he was rather old at this point, rather overweight, that he fell back on his chair, broke his neck, and died. That's how horrific this was. Our God got captured. Our God is not all that par- Imagine all of the things that are running through their heads about their understanding of who God is. And so what do the Philistines do? The Philistines take the ark and they put it in their temple of their God who is named Dagon. That's their God. They put the ark right next to this figure, this idol of Dagon and showing that Dagon is more powerful than the God of Israel. They leave it there, victorious. They go in the next morning to see a check-in. I don't know why, the temple worship. And they find Dagon on his face. It's tipped over. It's fallen over. Now, this is where I get to sound a little bit like Larry the Cable Guy. Well, Dagon, let's pick you up. <laughs> well, Dagon, why did you do that? So they pick him up and they put him up again. Leave him alone. The next day they come in there. He's that way again. Well, Dagon, let's pick him up again. They come in there a third time. This time, he is broken. He is broken. And not only that, the town where the ark was in, the people there began to develop tumors. They began to get sick. And the Philistines quickly find out uh, this God of Israel, there's something unique about this God. There's something that is unusual about this God that is not like our God. This God has, like, this is unbelievable. We're getting sick. He destroyed our idol. He destroyed our God here. Uh, we better just get rid of this ark. So they put him on a cart, put the ark on a cart, 
and the ox just, we'll just see where the ox goes, they said. If the ox goes back to Israel, it was meant to return back all along. If it doesn't, so be it. Just throwing, but just get it out of the town. And sure enough, they do. They take it. Now, think about this, about God's power and ours unique. The Israelites had thought all along that God, God will fight our battles. And it goes back to what Abraham Lincoln said. I don't know if, I, if God is on our side. I just pray that I'm on his side. And what, Israelites, what the Israelites didn't realize is that at the moment that the ark was captured, that they, were, that they were being disobedient, that God was not on, or rather they were not on God's side. And God allowed himself to be captured. And it kind of wrecked their whole idea of God and his power and the use of his power. But here's the one thing that I think what David writes that is so unique about what God says or displays about his power, and that's this. God's power displays his holiness. And what I mean by holiness is that God is different. God is set apart. He is not like you and I. He is not like any other God. God is different. Whose God would ever allow himself to be captured, but in captivity prove that he is the greater God than the God that they suppose captured him? God, right? This God, our God, is so set apart, so different, behaves so differently that it is just beyond, in many ways, our comprehension. And for the Israelites, they were learning a very, very powerful lesson. Before this, they knew God fought their battles. They knew of the Exodus. They had all of that on their side. God is on our side. He defeated the Egyptians. He defeated the Canaanites and all of these people. But now they find themselves on a different side of God's power and understanding that God is holy. And so this ark is on a cart. And the Israelites say, hey, look it. The ark has come back. Notice they didn't go rescue the ark. God doesn't need rescuing. Notice they didn't go steal it back. That's not the way it works. And so they rejoice and they take the ark with them to Jerusalem. Except, this is the big except about God's holiness, right? The cart was going along and all of a sudden the ox stumbled and the cart began to wobble, and a guy by the name of Uzzah reached out his hand to, to steady the ark, and immediately when he touches the thing, he is killed. And David and the Israelites are distraught. Wait, God, you came back. What did you, you just come back to smite us? What is with this deal? And so they said, okay, okay, okay. Let's just drop the ark off at this guy's house. We'll come back for it later. Just don't touch it. You imagine that showing up in your front door? <laughs> right? We got something here. It's the ark. No big deal. Whatever you do, just don't touch it. We'll be back for it in a little while. All right? That was the situation. Of course, that guy ended up being blessed. He followed. He knew. And what did David and the Israelites do? David was distraught. He was angry with God for killing this guy. But what did they do? They went and read the scriptures and if you read the Old Testament, particularly in the five books there, you know how the ark is to be carried. God says it. In fact, he says this, the ark is to never be placed on a cart. It is to be carried by the Levites. There are poles that they are to, it is to be carried by the Levites and the Levites only. Ah, let's try this again. So they go back to the guy's house. Okay, we think we got this now. We're going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. That's where David writes all this. He's experienced the ups and downs 
of God's power. And now he writes, guess what? Yeah, his enemies flee. And by the way, there may be just a tinge of understanding here is that even there, yeah, the Philistines flee, you know, all of them were fleeing, all that kind of stuff. And by the way, God's enemies here is very simple. An enemy of God is simply one who opposes God's will, God's purposes, and God's people. That's an enemy of God. We hear a lot of terminology nowadays about the Antichrist. When is the Antichrist going to come? When the Antichrist is going to come? But if you read the scriptures, and you read a lot in, in, in Revelation and even throughout the New Testament, the Antichrist isn't just simply one person. It can be many people. Who are Antichrists? Anti is just simply the prefix for the word what? Against. That's it. There are a lot of people who are against Jesus Christ. They're Antichrists. Okay? They're Antichrists. People who are knowingly opposing his will, his purpose, and his people. Okay? Those are, those are enemies. However, in the same token... There are those of us, as followers of Jesus, we also can get on the, I don't know what side it's on, let's, let's just say for lack of purpose, or the wrong side of God's power. It's not necessarily the wrong side, but the side of the power we don't want to be on. And where God's enemies here are being punished, suffering for their complete lack in regard for God's holiness. When the people of Israel sin, they're being disciplined. Now, what's the difference? I think the difference is simply this. A disciplining is a training opportunity, an opportunity to be reminded again, listen, this is who you are. This is what you need to do. Go back to the Bible in this case and understand how the ark is to be carried, right? But both serve the same purpose, is to reveal that God is holy. He is not the same as you and I. He doesn't act like we think how every other God or gods might act. This God that we serve, this God whom we know, this God is different, and his power in this case demonstrates or displays his holiness. Charles Spurgeon said this, As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean, as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God, a God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, he could not be divine. That's power displaying holiness. We think God is unpredictable. No, no, God is not unpredictable. God is just incomprehensible at times. We just don't fully understand him. And in many ways, that's by design. In many ways, that is, that is part of, I think, what God has shared. I, I will share what I can with you, what you can handle, but you can't handle it all. You cannot handle it all. That's power. Exodus 15.11 says this, no wonder, in response, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? This is God's power. It's beautiful. 
Oftentimes, God's power displays his holiness. I am not like you or anyone else. I am different. And sometimes we might forget that. I love how the book of Hebrews talks about how we can boldly come before the throne, right? Sometimes, and maybe it's just me. If it's just me, forgive me, please. Sometimes I think we mistake that boldness for comfort um, in a way that means sloppy or lazy or a way to just simply forget about the fact that we have come into the presence of God who is holy. That sometimes we come in and we're putting our feet up on the table, so to speak. We're putting our feet up and we're just kind of, you know, okay, God, I'm here. Have at it. Teach me. Love on me. Have mercy on me. Work your power through me. Whatever it is. There's a a lack of understanding that God is very, very holy. I'm reminded of a story off script again. I love it. George W. Bush was president of the United States. He was at his parents' house as president of the United States. He was going for a run. He was getting his shoes on. He put his feet up on the coffee table to put his shoes on. His mother, Barbara, comes, off, comes in and says, get your foot off my coffee table. His father, the previous president, comes in and says, Barbara, that's the president of the United States. I don't care. It's my son. He's got his foot on the table. That's disgusting. No, get your foot off. You will respect my furniture. <laughs> he got told. Put his foot down. <laughs> there is an aspect of understanding that when we come into God's house, into his presence more than that, that there is a reverence we need to bring and all that we need to bring a fear in the sense of not that we're going to be smited, but rather a fear in that we are in the presence of one whom we do not fully comprehend or understand, but yet nonetheless loves us and desires to be with us. And in response, let us not think we are God's gift to him. Let us think just the opposite. I don't deserve to be here. And it's because of him I get to be here. Do not take the worship of our God as something we have a right to. That was never communicated in the book of Hebrews. It is a privilege that is bestowed on us. A privilege that is given to us. Do not ever think for a minute that you and I, the reason why we're Christians is because I accepted Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. The reason why we're Christians first and foremost isn't just because we accepted him, but because he chose us. There would be no choice had he not chosen us first. Are you with me? Understand that. Understand that. I think all of that is kind of wrapped up in what David writes here, but there's a second display of his power here as well, and it's this. God's power displays his gentleness as well. Let me explain. Let's go on to verse 5. David writes the following. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. 
God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, or the one of Sinai, excuse me, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it. And from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor. Do you know what gentleness is, brothers and sisters? Gentleness is power under control. Now, let me just say this. There are several essences by which we describe God. He is all-knowing, right? That's, that's a big one. He is all-present. That's another big one. There's a third one. He is all-powerful. That's the one we're on today, omni, omnipotent. That's all-powerful. But there's a fourth one that is rarely shared. Let me share it with you today. He's omnibenevolent. It means all-good. He's all-good. So when we say that God is all-powerful, what we mean is there's no one over him. He can do whatever he wants, even if it's illogical, even if it's unnatural. No one can stop him. No one. He can do whatever he wants. And you know what his excuse is? God, why did you do that? Because I'm God. That's it. How many of you parents have finally had it with your kid and say, Mom and Dad, why are you doing that? Because I'm your mom and dad. I don't have to give you a reason. Right? I don't have to give you a reason. God can do that, but he doesn't. God can use what and do whatever he wants, even if it's bad, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because, he restri- because of who he is. He is omnibenevolent. He is good. We say this in the church. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. He's omnibenevolent. He doesn't use his power for evil. Simply doesn't. Why? Because that's who he is. He is all good. He is all good. And because of that, he will not misuse his power. And here we have this example, this beautiful thing of this gentleness, that this all-powerful God, of whom no one can stop, of whom no one is over, all of a sudden now saying, not only do I use my power to display my holiness, but I also use my power to display my gentleness. I will be a father to the fatherless. I will champion the widows. I will take care of the prisoners. I will, I will provide for the poor. That's power in God's economy. That's what God does. Oh, and by the way, guess who he gets to use to help dole out his power? Us. Us. We become, because of the power that God has given us. Remember, Jesus, he gave us this power. What did he say in Matthew 28? All authority and what else? Power has been given to me. Now go, he tells his disciples. Preach the kingdom. Baptize. Do all of these things. And then Jesus says this, and it's a reassuring thing, and I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Continue the work I began. You now have power. How many of us as Christians, when we have been given God's power, 
think of ourselves as, oh, I've got power now. Let's slay, let's slay some people in the spirit today. Some of you probably don't even know what that phrase means, right? That's a violent phrase, by the way. That is just a violent phrase to me. You know, we talk about, we think of God's power, we think of the gifts of the Spirit, right? You know, speaking in tongues and healings and, and casting out demons. That's power, right? You see someone, I mean, holy cow, you imagine, you know, possess, demon possession, all that kind of stuff. And you could just come up to someone in the name of Jesus, come out of them, all that kind of stuff. I mean, woo! Talk about a superpower, right? All that kind of stuff. That's not the only thing. And we sometimes make it the central thing. Shame on us. Real power is the Great Commission. Real power is doing what God has said he does here, being a father to the fatherless, defender of the widows, providing for the poor. That's power. That's power. A Presbyterian pastor by the name of Stephen Sharnock said the following, and Randall's going to love this language. He said this, God doth not govern the world. He was 17th century, okay? Only by his will as an absolute monarch, although he could. But by his wisdom and goodness as a tender father. It is not his greatest pleasure to show his sovereign power or his inconceivable wisdom, but his immense goodness to which he makes the other attributes subservient. I share that because I think the greatest demonstration of God's power isn't what we think it is oftentimes. This aspect of we're all in the pool and the lifeguard comes and says, all right, everybody out of the pool. We're done. God's greatest demonstration of his power in many ways isn't the fact that all of a sudden now we get to see those that we think are our enemies vanquished finally. That we get to see those who we have who have just caused us nothing but pain and heartache, that we get to now finally see that they get theirs, that they are getting punished by God. No, God's, I believe, greatest demonstration of his power is the cross. God is the only one, I believe, who can truly snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Nothing spoke more than, once again, like the ark being captured by the Philistines and to see Jesus hung on the cross and his followers going, what do we do now? Are you kidding me? Death got Jesus. Oh, no, it didn't. Oh, no, it didn't. And what Jesus says, with that life-giving power that dwells within each, each and every one of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior, that same power that raised him from the dead is now in us. Jesus says to us, use that power and serve. Use that power and forgive. Use that power and have compassion. Use that power against your enemies and don't curse them, pray for them. 
Use that power. That's the lamb and the lion, church. That's the God whom we serve. Let God take care of the stuff we are so foaming at the mouth at times to want to take care of. Oh, Jesus, let me judge that person. Oh, Jesus, step aside. It's, I'm rolling up my sleeves. It's time to get busy here. No, no, let God take care of that. He's going to be a lot better at it than you and I could ever be. Let's just use the power he gave us for the way that he called us to use it. And so today, you might be here. And maybe you have a picture of God that was kind of on the malevolent side, kind of evil, vindictive, maybe judgmental. One who maybe his sole purpose was to catch us messing up, stepping out of line, and to zap us, to punish us. There is an invitation I want to share with you this morning that Jesus gives. And I believe that invitation is in the backdrop of what I just shared, of a false belief that in order to get on the good side of God, we need to make sure that we don't mess up. We need to make sure that we do things right. We need to make sure that we check the things off the box. We need to make sure that we're all good. It's against that backdrop and against the, maybe the false beliefs of who God is that Jesus offers the following invitation in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 through 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. This is the God of the universe. The all-powerful, almighty God, the lion and the lamb who says, I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest. Give up the show Give up the burden. Give up the hatred. Give up the coldness. Give up all of that. Learn from me. And he says in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The power of God is awesome. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And Jesus gives us a little bit of that power. And it can be sometimes hard to exercise it. And maybe today we need to confess that we've not used that power well. Maybe we need to also confess that we haven't used it at all. Maybe we need to reaffirm his power in our lives that calls us to be life-giving to others as we have received life from him. And then we can do what verses 32 through 35 say. Sing to God you kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides across the highest heavens in the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice, proclaim the power of God whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Father, this morning, I am grateful for your power. I am grateful, Jesus, that you are gentle, that you are holy, that you are gracious, that you are benevolent, that you are all good. Jesus, I'm grateful that you have shared, that you have given every single one of us some of your authority and power. Not to use it for ourselves, even though we may have Jesus and we confess that to you. Maybe we have judged others 
Maybe, maybe we have given a false indication of your gospel. Maybe we have done things or shared things and have used your name as justification or even used scripture as justification for our views when they were our views, not yours. Forgive us for those times that we have not been a father to the fatherless, that we have not championed the widows, that we have not provided for the poor, but maybe have found excuses to do none of those things in, the, in your name nonetheless. Forgive us, Jesus, for this. Help us to once again use your power that you have given us for your purposes, for your kingdom, and Jesus, most importantly, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.